Welcome to the Light Bears Institute podcast, where we seek to improve biblical literacy by discussing key storylines and themes in Scripture. Hi, welcome to another Light Bearers podcast. We're excited to have you here listening with us. Um, we are going to be talking through the book of Revelation today. It's actually our final podcast over biblical survey. My name is Tori Fancher, and I'm here with Kevin McCollum. Kevin, why don't you introduce yourself and explain more about your connection with Light Bearers? Yeah, thanks, Tori. It's great to be here. So, Kevin McCollum, I've been with Light Bearers 13 years and uh, serve as executive director. It's my joy to do that, and I'm excited about talking Scripture. Uh, You know, this institute is a class that we do with our college students once a week in our different campuses. We focus a year on biblical overview, as we have been this year, and then next year we'll focus in on a systematic and biblical theology, so it's a Christian doctrine and practice year for the students. So yeah, I love doing that, and I love these podcasts and bringing in different teachers. And apparently when uh, we looked for volunteers for Revelation, I must have missed that day because uh, you and I are the lone people standing uh, in the last book here, the one most people avoid. So Exactly. Yeah. We, um, I actually, we used to travel with a, another ministry that we would go to Christian high schools across the states. And it seemed like every time we opened up discussion on uh, just an open-ended discussion. Revelation almost always got brought up. Students were very curious about it, and I feel like that is pretty standard across the board that most people want to know about Revelation, but the majority of teachers don't or aren't comfortable teaching on Revelation. It's so it's a very intimidating book, it seems like. I mean, why do you think that is? Well, I think that um, partly it's confusing because we say it's confusing, Right. So there's a culture of just avoiding it because uh, they know a lot of smart people that say they don't understand it. Um, Another reason, though, I think is because it's an apocalyptic writing. Uh, We don't have a lot of writing in sort of modern Western society that we flock to that's apocalyptic. We don't mind watching an apocalyptic movie. And just to be clear, like apocalyptic simply just means the end of the world, complete and total end of the world that we live in. So so we'll watch a movie that's apocalyptic, and um, uh, and yet to read this apocalyptic writing is a little is a little challenging. I think a lot of people just don't know how to deal with it as a genre, and so they walk away from, it, especially when they know it's the Bible. This isn't a fictitious story, you know. A fiction apocalyptic writing might be exciting, but we're talking about the real end of the real world that we live in. It can it certainly can be intimidating. Um, I think people get intimidated too because their exposure often to revelation are giant wall charts, you know, and people with all kinds of views on how they figured out that it's all coming to an end. And so people um, are intimidated. They think only smart people can deal with revelation Um, or they take the opposite approach. I remember, you know, uh, it was popular to say your end times view was pan millennialism. You know, it's all going to pan out in the end. So it doesn't really matter anyway. So why why give it a why give it a shot? So that intimidates people. So that's a that's another reason. Um, and I think you know by design, uh, it's mysterious. We're not supposed to know it all. We, we can't uh, understand everything about this book. And so it um, because we can't put everything in a nice, neat, and tidy box, or because things are confusing, or or they take a little extra effort to understand to do some research. We just tend to avoid it by nature and go to some of the books that we're more comfortable with. 
So for those of us who aren't avoiding studying Revelation, I know we talk to our students about context being super important, and most often, uh, more often than not, speakers, when they come and teach at Institute, they start out with a background of that particular book. Uh, what about the context or the background of Revelation? Uh, can you explain a little bit more about what's going on during that time that the book was written? Yeah, so the, we're in the early church, um, and we're under Roman rule, as uh, the entire New Testament would have been written under Roman rule. Um, we know from the early church historians, or, or the early church father, particularly Irenaeus, that John wrote this, the apostle John wrote this, while Domitian was um, emperor of Rome, and that was actually in the latter parts of his reign. So probably around AD 95, 96. So Domitian wasn't known to be a particularly good ruler of Rome. Even Roman citizens didn't like the era under uh, Domitian. He was definitely an ego trip. He was paranoid. He wanted absolute control. And the church actually suffered quite a bit under Domitian. Now there's debate on how much, but but for sure any group that was a minority would have been under some um, difficulties under Domitian. And anyone who not not willing to acknowledge him as supreme ruler, even from an eternal standpoint, bow the knee, if you will, to uh, Domitian suffered a lot of consequences. So the church itself would have, uh, this letter would have been written in that, and the church itself would have struggled in terms of uh, being um, unfriendly with the, the Roman emperor. And to keep in perspective, Nero certainly greatly persecuted the church, and Nero had been dead less than 20 years in the writing of the book of Revelation. So the, the content, or excuse me, the context um, would have been one of... Um, you know, a lot of um, resistance from the Roman Empire. Well, and I mean, you were talking Nero, he had been dead less than 20 years. I'm sure Christians during that time are still suffering from trauma or memory of people who had died or were martyred underneath his reign. And then you enter with this new emperor who, like you said, is a little paranoid and is carrying on that reign of um, reign of terror or reign of uh, persecution against the Christians. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think it's a great point. You you really realize the early church at this point is still just a large family. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it's it's extended to a lot of provinces, and and, and you know, um, a lot of members have been added to that family. But it's still a smaller group, and um, and they a lot of them would have been known by one another. So you would have not been able to go to very many places where Christendom was uh, in place in the house churches and not find people that had a relative that was uh, persecuted or potentially martyred. So. And I know you mentioned earlier that people are quick to jump to end times when studying Revelation, but based on the setting you just explained, are there any other themes or um, or is that set does that setting influence the themes within Revelation um, as far as setting up what the book talks about? Yeah, I think in God's kindness, He um, called John to write this book. Um, with an image or a theme of deliverance at its forefront. So if you and I are living under the reign of Domitian, if we had relatives that died or, or had told stories of um, living under Nero, certainly we would be looking for a deliverer from suffering. We would also be looking for deliverance from that oppressive dictator that we were under. And so there are those themes that would have come out to the early church and been such a uh, a joy and a blessing and a hope and an encouragement. Um, one big theme that we see is clearly just the return um, 
of the one who would come and defeat all of God's enemies. Um, the, God's enemies were also the church's enemies, and one was going to come to deliver them. And um, of course, we know that person to be Jesus Christ. He's the one highlighted throughout all scripture as we've wrapped up this um, biblical survey, Genesis to Revelation, right? It's all been pointing to Christ all the way through. Uh, and here we have this final return of the one we've been looking for to be the ultimate deliverer. So that's a, that's a huge theme. And he's going to come and he's going to crush his adversaries, as Psalm 2 tells us, like a, an iron uh, rod crushing a, a piece of pottery. And Revelation highlights that. Uh, a big passage on that is in Revelation 19, where we see Christ returning on a white horse. His name is Faithful and True. He, he speaks, and it's like a sword coming from his mouth. He defeats the enemies in a word and delivers his people. And he says on his thigh and on his robe, he's got a name, and the name is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So this is a great hope, a great theme of Christ coming and defeating his enemies. So that would be huge, obviously, thinking about the, the context we were in. Another one is that not only is he going to come, but he actually reigns now. That the God of the universe is sovereign and he reigns now and there's nothing happening in their lives or ours today that he doesn't have a grasp on. So they don't have to live wondering if God's forgotten them or wondering if Domitian really is the, the final emperor as he thought he might be. That he, being an ego trip, as I said earlier, is really himself just a statue that will fall one of these days as all the statues uh, before him. And so Christ, as he leads the Apostle John to write Revelation, highlights continually the sovereignty of God. We see that he has sovereignty over the church, he has sovereignty over nations, their rulers, over all spiritual forces, even sovereignty over time and authority over time. Uh, and these are huge in the book of Revelation. And again, think about that if you're under Roman rule and you're dealing with all this persecution, to know, number one, that he's coming back, Christ is going to return, but number two, that he's actually in control now, that God sovereignly commands the universe. That's a huge comfort. And I can see that being a huge comfort for uh, people today. I know mental health issues are on the rise. Um, we're doing a study right now on this upcoming generation and how that is a huge struggle with them of seeing suffering in the world and uh, taking that on uh, themselves. So I can see this hope in the sovereignty of God being a huge blessing to um, the people that would read Revelation or study Revelation. So maybe as people are studying it for the first time, what would be some advice you could give to them as they dive into the book? Yeah, I would say um, anytime we approach the scripture, first and foremost, you should just ask the Holy Spirit to give you wisdom as we read it. Certainly he needs to illuminate the text for us, help us understand uh, so that we address it appropriately. And um, so that would be the first thing. I think particularly for Revelation, I think you should read it in big chunks. I don't recommend that you kind of read Revelation sort of a few verses at a time and ponder those verses. I think it, it, it's better to take Revelation in bigger, in bigger sections. I think it begins to make more sense. You don't get so caught up in how many eyes did that beast have and how many wings and what does that really exactly mean? You're able to zoom out a little bit and understand it. I think another is that Revelation has a lot going on, several genres at the same time. And so we mentioned that apocalyptic writing, for sure, Revelation starts off in verse 3 telling us it's a book of prophecy. So it's about things that are going to happen. It's a letter. I mean, there, there's actually seven letters that Christ dictated. So that's a unique situation in Scripture where Christ is actually dictating, says, hey, write this down. 
So we have letters that are dictated. We have some narrative going on. Uh, there's investigative reporting and all, all kinds of things through there. Um, the next thing I would say is, um, and this is true for, for all scripture, but don't let anything in Revelation cause you to leave a truth that you see clearly in, in somewhere else in scripture. So we're always to judge more confusing texts or less clear texts by the ones that are the most clear. So don't find anything in Revelation and go, oh man, my whole view on the Trinity is absolutely different and I was wrong because of this, or my whole view on salvation has just changed. Uh, no, you know, judge the things that are less clear by the things, you know, that are clear. Um, and I think, you know, it's okay that we don't understand everything. Mm-hmm. It's okay. Partly we have a moral issue in our own life, right? We, we can't possibly know everything that God has for us to know potentially in this side of heaven. And there are things that have not yet played out. Mm-hmm. Revelation is not all, um, all before us now. And so there are things that will make sense some other day that isn't today. And that's just okay. You just embrace that and understand that that's, that's fine. And I think that goes back to the mystery of God and the awe and reverence that we get to approach him with, um, knowing that we can't know everything this side of heaven. Yeah, that's right. And there's comfort in that, right? Exactly. It's comfort that we don't know everything, and yet he's still sovereign, he's good, he's kind, we can rest Mm -hmm. in that. And in reading it for the first time or the thousandth time, it's comforting to know that God has everything in control, and then he is returning for his people. Exactly. Typically, whenever institute speakers come and talk with the students, more often than not, we start with a background and then we move into an outline, whether that's explaining the structure at the very beginning or jumping right into that first part of the outline. So with Revelation, is there any structure? Is it more of a free-flowing set of visions that John is having as he's writing this down? Yeah, I think um, we see structure. You know, I think uh, everything God does is orderly, even if it's hard for us to see the order, right? <laughs> um, but there, but there is there's order there. I think because it's a complicated book, you could come up with a lot of complicated structures. I tend to think a simple structure revelation makes the book simpler to understand. So what, the way I see it really would be four sections. I think in chapter one, John sets up the book well um, to kind of give us an idea. One, it's a revelation. It comes from Christ. There's an angel. I have visions here, you know, those types of things. So I would say chapter one, we would call the introduction. I think chapter two and three are distinctly different as well. They're letters to the seven churches that um, were the major churches uh, in the day. And those would make up um, another section. And I think we could see those as things that are. So things that exist now. So you have an introduction. You have chapter one, chapter two and three would be the things that are. And I, we partly say that because in chapter four, we transition to things that are to come. And that would be chapter four till Revelation 22, verse five. So those are things that at least at the time of the writing had not played out. So those are futuristic things. And there's a debate on whether they've all played out or part of played out or whatever now, but, but at least in the writing, there are things to come. And then in chapter 22, six to the end, verse 21, really um, John wraps it up with an epilogue. So simple structure, chapter one would be an introduction, chapter two and three would be things that are, chapter four through 22, five would be things to come, and then chapter 22, six to things that are to come. Pretty, pretty simple. Gotcha. And if they're, again, if someone is studying Revelation for the first time, 
They now have the structure of introduction, things that are, things that are to come, and then the epilogue. Are there any key passages that uh, the reader should be focusing on or that they can uh, have these markers within the book um, that they can really spend some time in? Yeah, I think if I were doing a quick, you know, how do you kind of do a simple overview of, uh, of Revelation and maybe in, a, in an evening, you just want to read a few passages. Um, I think that, you know, you read the very beginning of chapter one, kind of the first three verses, so you know what's going on. I think uh, you dive into the letters starting chapter two, so chapter two and three. Um, might say the um, letter to the uh, church at Ephesus could be a good one just to kind of dive into. It's the first one. Um, you get some great um, insight into what was going on at Ephesus. And by extension, it, it's convicting to our heart because we see what's going on in our own heart in a sense where these letters are to us as well. So even like in um, to the church at Ephesus, Ephesians 2, he says, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance. You can't bear with those who are evil. So he gives us this commendation, like you're, you're, you're being faithful. Good job being faithful. Um, you're bearing up, you're patient for my name all these things. But he says, I have this against you. You've abandoned the love you had at first. So there was something missing their affection for Christ, even though they had a good understanding of who he was. We've talked, you know, at staff retreat um, a, a few weeks ago about being lulled to sleep with our doctrine. So doctrine is good. It's rich. It's necessary. We talk about all the time. This is a year we're going to hit doctrine for the entire year. We'll have podcasts on doctrine. Uh, absolutely is important. It's essential. You can't really serve Christ without appropriate doctrine, but you can walk away from your first love. And so here the church at Ephesus uh, was dealing with that. They were, they were defending the faith. They were being um, correcting people theologically for being out of line, but there was something about their love for Jesus that had waned. And so he was calling them back to that affection at first. So, so for example, there's a letter that was written to a church that we could look at and say, wow, that's rich. That's rich for me. And there's seven of those. So that would be good. It would be worth your time to read them all. If you don't, you know, pick, um, pick a couple of those and really sort of dig in. I think in the middle, this uh, kind of chapter four to the beginning of chapter 22, uh, maybe thinking more of some of the themes that are there. I think, um, you know, chapter four begins this great scene for two chapters on the throne room where John's giving us a vision of the throne. It's, it's flashing lights and, and there's, it's a rainbow resembling an emerald. It encircles the throne and it talks about the, the, the throne, but around the throne are 24 other thrones of elders and they're praising God and the creatures are praising God and the, the seven spirits of praising God and the sea is glass. And it's just this gorgeous scene. And, and you're thinking, man, whoever sits on that throne is something, and they're constantly crying out, he's worthy. So that would be, you know, um, chapter four, the first, you know, um, 10, 11 verses there. Um, and then maybe something in the, um, the judgments, kind of the middle, kind of sick, starting with uh, chapter six, um, there's um, some real heavy stuff there, you know, where God's judging the nations, and it just plays out chapter after chapter, verse after verse. And it uh, it can be a little bit uh, frightening and heavy, but but I would definitely not uh, not avoid it. Um, chapter eleven, verse eighteen, gives us sort of an idea of what is happening in the judgments, and basically the time has come. 
He says in verse 18, chapter 11, that the nations are angry and his wrath has come against them. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding the servants, the prophets, the saints, and he goes on. So there's something, as we read that middle section of Revelation, we're supposed to see it's final. The time has come. The things we've been warned about throughout the Old Testament, the things that we were warned about by Christ himself and by uh, the apostles, that the day is coming. And we just see in there, it's, it's over. Man, when it's over, it is over. There is no escaping. There will be uh, judgment upon the earth. And it's hard judgment. Um, chapter six, we see that the kings and princes and generals and all of these world leaders are, are hiding in a cave and all they want is for the mountain to fall on them. They want to escape the judgment. It's a tough judgment, um, but, but the judgment's real. So some sense of understanding in there to know, to kind of skim through those judgments, again, in a quick overview, but maybe dive in on, a, on one or two and just to see that they're full and final. So you have the throne room, you know, in chapter four and five, you have all these, um, the judgments. But man, you can't go through Revelation without understanding the Lamb. Chapter five, we, we have this scene where there's a scroll that's sealed up and no one's worthy and John weeps and it seems like all is hopeless. And yet here comes the Lamb, the one worthy. And then you have this great section of worthy as the Lamb to receive praise and honor. And, and uh, you see how all the heavenly circle around the worthiness of this this one. So I think that would be uh, something that would be important for us to spend time on and, and really kind of understand. And then understand in the end that it's over, the world is judged, and the earth will be no more, but there's a new city coming. There's a new heavens and a new earth. And you see that later in um, 21, 20 and 21. And um, I think that would be that would be important too. And of course, you know, as we see the end um, play out, how this book ends, there's great encouragement and just to know that no matter what we think, no matter we think it's fast or slow, that there is a time coming. Revelation 22, verse 12, you know, I'm coming soon. I'm bringing recompense with me. I'm going to repay everyone for what he's done. I'm the alpha, the omega, the first, the last, the beginning of the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life, that they may enter the city of gate. And he says, outside the gates are people that are suffering. They're the ones who were judged not worthy to enter into the city. Yeah, with that last verse you read, where it's talking about, um, behold, I am coming soon. Uh, blessed are those who have the right to the tree of life and that they can enter the city by the gates, uh, one of the things we talk about with our students is our theme statement for Institute, God glorifying himself by dwelling among his holy covenant people. It seems like at that moment, you see the fulfillment of that God dwelling among his holy people, his full glory on display. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, that's where our hope lies, right? I mean, all of our faith, all of our longing and hunger, every pain that we feel in this world, every unfulfilled longing, every longing that's partially fulfilled but not satisfying pushes us to that moment, right? Where Christ comes in his fullness, returns, puts himself on display. We see that the one that we've hoped for, our affections fulfilled there, our faith is now sight, right? And we too fall down and we worship him in spirit and in truth and in presence. And this reality 
of God glorifying himself by dwelling among a holy covenant people, it finishes here. He's fully dwelling, fully glorified, right? We're fully holy. All of it comes together here in the Revelation as we see Christ returning and making all things new. And I mean, we started this podcast, and I'm sure many start approaching the book of Revelation with a lot of fear, intimidation, and yet, as we've been talking, it seems like this book actually inspires more hope than it should fear, at least for Christians. How has it affected you in your daily life, or how should it affect us as Christians in our daily life? Yeah, well, the um, certainty of the return of Christ it trumps any of the uncertainty of my hopes and dreams or things here, right? The more we lose on this earth or the more we suffer or the more things don't work out the way that we think we deserve them to, um, it puts us right back in the position of needing someone to make it right. So when Christ returns, he doesn't only deliver his people, he makes all things right. He makes all things whole again. He, he brings us back to that pre-fall condition where things are, are, are made, um, uh, there's restitution for all of it. And, and even the cosmos is realigned the way it ought to be. Things are as they should and as they were and as they, we need them to be, we long for them to be. So if we live our lives in expectant hope of the return of Christ and in confidence in God's sovereignty and confidence in um, the certainty that he will reign fully and finally and we will be there with him, then really everything else fades. Um, everything else is temporary, no matter how pain it is. You know, we may not be under Domitian's rule, but we may be under the rule of cancer. You know, we've talked about this as a staff, you know, um, Brett Keller is here in the room with us who has uh, been suffering with back issues. Uh, our home burned down four months ago. We had a staff member in Dallas that had a crane fall uh, into her apartment and she's been displaced there. We've had staff members that have had miscarriages and things of late. So we've, we've had a lot of suffering within our own family here at light bearers, and none of us would walk through that suffering joyfully if it wasn't for the hope that someday um, it all leads to somewhere greater. That hope is, is laid at the foot of Christ, the same place our pain and sufferings will be someday. And so him making all things new means he lifts all that burden from us. But we suffer that burden joyfully now, knowing that he hasn't come back. He, he doesn't delay just to make us suffer. He doesn't delay his return so that we have to learn how great he is only in, in, in a uh, more of an oppressive sort of way, but he's kind and he delays because the hour isn't here yet. And again, let's go back to the judgments. These judgments are going to be real and, and they're, they're permanent. And so um, in his kindness, he's waiting, but a day will come. And so how does it affect me in my own life? That hope rises up within me when I recognize that I'm being fit for something, for a day to come, that Christ is sovereign and he rules and reigns. Um, and it also calls me to have this heaviness of the reality that judgment is to come as well. And if you know Christ, if you're his, if you've repented and you've turned to Christ, then that judgment has fallen upon Christ's head already on your behalf. That's a glorious day. That's a glorious day of reunion and resurrection and celebration and being ushered into the heavenlies with him. You're, you have a seat at that banquet, right? Um, but if you don't, then you too will be like the, the kings in the cave wishing at least the mountain would fall. And that's heavy, but that judgment will fall. And if it doesn't fall upon Christ's head on your behalf, it falls upon you. And so that's a, 
That's a heavy message of revelation. I think it's another reason people avoid it because we have to deal with this person, Christ. If he's coming back, if he's sovereign, if he's laid out um, the path to him clearly, and yet we're fallen, we sin, you know, we, um, we can't earn a spot you know, beside him in that throne room, then we have to deal with him. And the only way to deal with him is to surrender, repent, believe, and follow him. And if we're unwilling to do that, Revelation is a frightful book. No, for sure. If it's heavy because you don't know Christ, there's a great invitation in Revelation, just in God's grace, as he wraps up the book, this is what we read. The spirit and the bride say, come. There's an invitation for all right? And let him who hears say, come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. Whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. So there's this great invitation for those who will be judged in the end to come now. If you're thirsty, come. If you hope, come. And uh, we'd love to talk to you about that too. Certainly any of us here at Light Bears or uh, find a great local church, ask those questions. And um, man, he's gracious, he's kind, he's good, he's merciful, and he does, he calls us to himself. No, and I think that's really good. I mean, I even doing this podcast have come away encouraged and um, hopeful, but also, like you mentioned, it's a heavy book and feeling the weight of that and the urgency of that. Um, well, thank you so much, Kevin. We really appreciate you sharing about the book of Revelation and ending our podcast on biblical survey. Uh, Like Kevin mentioned, we are discussing systematic theology this upcoming year, so we should have some podcasts out that will be dealing with systematic theology topics. Uh, So stay tuned, and you'll get to hear some more uh, from us about those topics. Yeah, thanks, Tori. It's been great. It's been a great uh, year. I hope everyone's enjoyed the podcast, and we'd love to hear from people. So if you'd love to give us a comment or two, um, we would greatly appreciate it. And I would love to hear from you. Info at lightbearers.com. You've been listening to the Lightbears Institute podcast, a production of Lightbears Ministries. For more information, visit lightbears.com. Lightbears.